Good morning. My name is Brian. I'm on the teaching team here at City Church, and it's great to be together as a church family this morning. On and off over the last year or so, we've been going through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, his first letter called 1 Corinthians. And just last week, Pastor Dean took us through 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to set a little context for us because chapter 5 and chapter 6 are just literally a page apart. They would have been read together. And in chapter 5, Paul had a strong corrective for the church. They were tolerating unrepentant sexual sin in the body, and they were prideful about it. And Paul is admonishing the church. He thinks it's a given that they should understand that the individuals were wrong, but he's correcting them. They should have taken this more seriously. Paul even told them if they go to the person and he doesn't repent, they should excommunicate him. They should disfellowship him. They shouldn't even eat with him. And that seems harsh to us today, but I think what we're going to see in chapter 6 is going to help us understand that. But just briefly, that action on the church's part was to communicate to this unrepentant individual that they didn't have confidence that he was a Christian. But it was also, it's not just an act of judgment. They also did this to hope that the person would come back in repentance. They're showing him the weight and cost of his sin. But the third reason Paul gave was that this helps protect the holiness of the church. And he gives us a a baking analogy. I'm not the baker in my family, but I understand enough to know a little bit of yeast makes a whole lot of dough rise. And that's what Paul says about the church and sin. A little bit of sin will spread and infect everything. So we need to take seriously our personal holiness and the holiness of the church. But Paul also told them to stop judging people outside of the church. They had things backwards. They're judging people outside, but they're not even taking care of the sin that's inside. Because Paul thinks that Christians are responsible for each other's holiness and unrepentant sin in some ways. But today in chapter 6, we're going to see that the church had even further reversed things. They're taking their internal disputes and not settling them amongst fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're taking them outside of the church to be judged by non-believers. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. And we'll keep reading in a little bit. But In these first verses, it's hard to miss how frustrated Paul is. Like, we still start questions with, don't you know today? And they often have an edge to them. Paul is frustrated. He's he's basically expressing his horror at how the church is acting. And what seems like it had happened is one believer, professing Christian, had defrauded another professing Christian, and these two didn't work it out amongst themselves. And then they further didn't work it out in the context of the church, The one who had been defrauded took it to a civil authority. 
And often in those days, the civil magistrates or judges would sit in the public square in the center, and so this would have been a public spectacle. But also back then, courts often weren't um, impartial, and so they often favored those who had money or status. And so it seems likely, though we can't be sure, that the defrauded brother is trying to get a leg up on and actually get back at, not in just a justice-seeking way, the person who had defrauded him. He's compounding the other person's sin. But it's the church that Paul is admonishing. They should have prevented this. And this is what he says in verse 1. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge trivial cases? Paul starts out saying, how dare you? He finds this offensive and and likely somewhat crazy. Why are the people of God going to the people of the world to settle the disputes between the people of God? When, as Paul says, the people of God will one day judge the world. And if the people of God can't even settle their own small, trivial cases, how will they one day be entrusted with more? Now, the word trivial there probably implies a couple things. The first is is that likely, just even amongst humans, this dispute was somewhat trivial. Now, being defrauded is important, but there are obviously more weighty matters we could imagine. But I think Paul has something additional in mind. It's trivial in light of eternity. It's trivial in light of what Christians who will reign with Christ have been entrusted with or will be entrusted with to judge. And he continues in verse 3 saying, Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as judges those who have no standing in the church? So more than just judging the world, Christians will one day judge angels. And here's what that means. I don't really know. It's not exactly clear. There are a few places in the New Testament that make reference to this, but they assume like their readers know what they're talking about. And likely this was a belief and a teaching that had developed from the apostles and maybe carrying a little bit on from early Judaism. And so we can't be exactly sure what this means. But there is something we can be confident of. Jesus promises that his people will reign with him. Jesus is the Lord of all creation who will come back in power and glory and in judgment. And there is a sense in which we will reign with him. Now, what that looks like, there's some mystery there, but it's a high calling. So how can we reign with Jesus over all creation, including angels, if we can't even settle our own simple matters? And Paul says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Now, his tone has communicated this, but now he just comes right out and says it. The way they're acting is shameful. And here's why. They're not acting like what they are. They are not acting like what they claim to be. They're the people of God. They are saints, and they're acting like people who are people of the world, who don't know God. Now, earlier in Paul's letter, in chapters 1 through 4, he spends a lot of time talking about wisdom. And he basically has two categories. There is the wisdom of the world, and there is the wisdom of the kingdom of God. And what is wise in the kingdom of God is foolish in the world, And what is wise in the world is foolish in the kingdom of God. And the reason why Paul has spent four chapters on this is because the Corinthian church thought they were wise. And he has previously told them they are fools in God's eyes in many ways. So when he brings us back to that wisdom 
topic here, we should think back to chapters 1 through 4. He asks them, is there not one wise enough among you to settle this trivial dispute? You in a church that thinks you're wise, you're really wise in the world's eyes? I mean, think about it. They didn't settle the issue in a biblical Christian way. They went outside to a worldly type of unjust solution, wisdom of the world, not wisdom of God. And Paul says as much in verse 6, instead, brother goes to court against brother and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Multiple layers of defeat are here. The first is simply one brother in Christ defrauded another brother in Christ. The second is they didn't settle it between the two of them like they should have. The third is that the church didn't intervene and help them settle it. And the fourth is they take it outside to get judged by a worldly court. And Paul thinks this is a huge deal. Like he's using very emotionally laden language. And why is that? Simply because there was a a trivial lawsuit that went outside of the church? No, I I don't think that's the primary reason. The reason is the church, these Christians, are acting like the gospel doesn't have the tools to address this conflict. They're communicating to the world that the gospel doesn't have the resources to even work through trivial intrapersonal issues. Paul thinks what they believe about the gospel should be uh, leading to a very different conclusion here, but they're communicating something incorrect about the gospel, the Bible, and God himself by how they're acting. Paul actually says it would have been better for the person who had been defrauded to have just dropped the issue and suffered the fraud than for him to pursue it in a secular court. But once again, everyone's hands are dirty. The person who sinned, the person who sinned by taking him outside to court, and the church too. And this likely sounds odd to us, like, should we do that today? Like, what what does this mean to us? How can we make sense of what he's saying? Well, if we view the church... The way many view the church today, this is probably confusing. But that takes us to our first point. To the contrary, Christians have a new primary community and allegiance. Christians have a new primary community and calling and allegiance. So in order to understand Paul's perspective, we have to see the church the way he sees the church. He doesn't see it as a meeting at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock He doesn't see it as a service. He doesn't see it as something that you put your name to. He doesn't see it as something you watch on a screen. He sees it as fundamentally different than that, though it may involve some of those things. Fundamentally, the church is a people that God has saved for Himself that have thereby been committed to each other. All Christians are fundamentally and primarily citizens of a nation of God before they are citizens of Leon County, Tallahassee, Florida, the United States of America, before they have an allegiance to a political party, we are fundamentally part of a different nation. And individual churches, and by that I don't mean buildings, but groups of Christians committed to one another following their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, those churches are like little outposts and embassies of the nation of God, but they're right here in this world. So when you're in London and there's an embassy of the United States and you're in that embassy, you're on a little chunk of American soil right in the middle of England. And churches are supposed to be like that in this world. So we operate according to a different standard of ethics 
than the world. We have a different standard of justice than the world. We have a different standard of economics. When Paul says you should have just suffered the fraud, there's an ethical component to that, a moral component, but there's also an economic component. It's better not to get your money back than to do this other thing. So the way we view our money as Christians is different. We have different standards because fundamentally we are citizens and members of a primary new community in allegiance. There's no other way to understand how Paul can say it's better to be defrauded than take a brother to court. And Jesus would tell us this applies even when it comes to family relationships and blood and kin relationships. He actually says, if you love mother and father more than me, you're not fit to be my disciple. In other words, even above family relationships, the children of God joined in a church and an assembly are a primary community and identity unit and actually a primary family. So we can shoulder the cost of being defrauded because it doesn't touch our identity unless we fail to believe the gospel. And in this nation of God, our net worth doesn't define us. Our social standing doesn't define us because those things are not important in that economy. And I, I learned this in a kind of powerful and also painful way when several years ago, my, my wife and I had a, a couple, friends, that we had been very close to. And due to some things on our part, we deeply hurt that other couple. And that relationship was very quickly basically severed, like think of taking an axe to a, a small tree limb. It's just severed. And over many months and actually years, we, we tried to work through that. We tried to reconcile, and as often happens in those circumstances, the hurt piles up on both sides. So hurt people often hurt people. And, and no one's blameless, although the, the lion's share was certainly ours. And people along the way were asking, why are you going through this? Like, why are you trying to sit down and talk with them again when it's just going to lead to more hurt and pain? And some people who cared about us said, why, why are you just going to put yourselves through that? And even the two couples asked themselves the same question, asked each other that question. Why are we, should we just call it off? And what we all realized was, we're going to spend eternity together. Can't we work it out now? If fundamentally our calling to each other as Christians is primary, and we can't just say, you know what, we'll agree to disagree, we're going to go our separate ways. We can't do that as Christians. The Scriptures call us to more than that. And yes, it's painful, but it's what we're called to because we have a primary allegiance to each other as the people of God. And looking back on that, I am both dismayed that that whole situation occurred and very thankful to the Lord because of how He mended that relationship. His grace was evident in that and sustained us as we bared with one another over months and years. But that's what we're called to as Christians. Since we have an allegiance to Christ, we have an allegiance to one another. And we can't claim to be God's child and disown His other children. So there is a general point in this passage about lawsuits. We have a primary community and allegiance, but the specifics also matter here. Christians shouldn't be suing other Christians. I shouldn't see any of you on Judge Judy. Christians shouldn't run from their intrapersonal issues either. While there are often several reasons people will leave a church and go to another church, a common category is intrapersonal issues. And often, we leave rather than addressing those. It's difficult, it's messy, it's hurtful. We would just rather go to a different church. And that's easy to do if we view church as a service we consume or as a product that we order and it's on our terms. But we shouldn't do that 
if we view church as a community of people saved by Christ and committed to one another, as a new primary allegiance. And we're called to bear with one another. And it's easy to say that, oh, we're, we're bearing with one another, but you only bear with something that's difficult. If it weren't difficult, you wouldn't call it bearing. It's kind of like the word tolerance today. People say, well, all viewpoints are equally valid. We need to tolerate. And it's like, you can only tolerate things you disagree with. The word presupposes a disagreement. To bear with one another presupposes a difficulty in uh, perhaps unjust weight has been placed on you that you are carrying that you don't deserve. But it's what we're called to as Christians, as a part of this New Testament community of primary commitments and allegiances. Now, in verse 9, Paul is going to take this specific point, and he's going to broaden it out and expand it to be more general. Let's read that together in verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Passages like this in the New Testament should make us stop and pause and take a serious introspective look. Paul has just told us very clearly that there are types of people, really patterns of life, that are fundamentally incompatible with Christianity. In other words, these mark people that are not co-heirs with Christ, they're not going to reign with Christ one day because, as Paul would say, they're not even Christians, even if they claim to be. A profession of being a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 7 when He says, "'Many will say to Me on the last day, "'Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in Your name?' And Jesus will say to some, "'Depart from Me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness.'" So there are types of lifestyles, types of patterns of sin that are incompatible with Christianity, and we can't just skip over this point because it's uncomfortable today or politically incorrect or because we don't like it. We can't just jump to the, such were some of you. We need to grapple with it. In many of Paul's letters, there are lists like this, and they give us a representative sample of sins and patterns of life that are incompatible with Christianity. But these lists aren't comprehensive. You could, of course, imagine other sins. In the New Testament and the Old Testament speak of certainly other sins. Paul is giving us a a snapshot, some examples. And I just want to spend a couple moments on each of them and walk through the list. So he starts off saying, sexually immoral people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this category, which finds its roots in the Old Testament, really excludes any sexual conduct outside of a one-man, one-woman monogamous marriage. So, not a pattern of premarital sex, not a pattern of adultery, not a pattern of pornography, not a pattern of homosexuality. And as 21st century humans, we are remarkably good at developing new categories of sexual immorality. But that's why the term is general. It would apply to all of the new types of depravity that we can develop. Paul continues and says, no idolaters. Now, at this time, an idol would have likely been something physical that had been made with hands, and would have been esteemed or worshipped or had offerings or sacrifices or incense offered to it. And that's certainly excluded. And we don't really do that much explicitly today in the United States, though there is some of it. But around the world, this is still a large concern. But an idol is something that our chief pursuit and allegiance revolves around. 
And so if there are things that I will sin to get, or if there, is, there are things I will sin when I do not get, those very well could be an idol. What delights my heart? That very well may be an idol. Paul continues and says, no adulterers. Now, on the one hand, he didn't need to say that because that's covered under sexual immorality. But there are some people who would say, yes, I'm having an affair. Yes, I'm doing this pattern of sexually uh, explicit misconduct. However, God's going to forgive me. And I would just simply say the Scriptures give that person no confidence that that's the case. If we sin on boldly, the Scriptures do not give us confidence that we are Christians. In fact, this verse would tell us that kind of person will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul continues and says, no males who have sex with males. And because the question of homosexuality and Christianity has become more of a contentious issue, I just want to spend a moment here. So Paul wrote in Greek. We don't read Greek. We read in English. And this verse has been translated a variety of ways over the years, but they are all getting at the same thing. And Paul used two different words here. The first, which means soft, would have referred to a passive partner. And the second would have referred to a practicing homosexual. And some will say, well, this is about exploitation or abuse, and there's nothing in the context to make us think that. Some will say that Paul made up the word here, and so we can't know what it means. Now, he may have made up the word. He also uses it again when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, but it would have been clear to the original audience what Paul was referring to. Paul was a good Jew. He was a student of the Old Testament scriptures. He quotes them, it seems like, on almost every page. And in Leviticus 18.22, God says, you shall not go to bed with a male as one goes to bed with a woman. It is an abomination. And what Paul does is he takes the word from this verse for man, and he takes the word for go to bed with, and he puts them together to make a word which, even if you'd never seen it, it would have been very clear what he meant. And it shouldn't surprise us that this is in the scriptures, because recall of our definition of sexual immorality, recall Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, where he teaches explicitly that appropriate sexual expression looks like one man and one woman coming together to be one flesh for one lifetime, and hence everything outside of that is sinful. It's against God's design. But more than that, we can focus on the personal guilt before God, and we should, but one thing we've often forgotten to talk about as Christians is the fact that when we live outside of God's design, it's not good for us. Like any creator, God knows how he designed us, to work. He knows how he designed us to live, and he's told, that in, he's told that to us in his scriptures. And part of the reason is so we can live holy and blameless lives before him, but also a part of that is because when we live according to God's design, even if we aren't Christians, it leads to greater flourishing. Paul continues his list, and he says, not thieves. People who have a pattern of theft, of taking from other people, show themselves to have hearts that do not love Jesus. He says, not greedy people. If your heart is consistently desiring other things and you are taking it and living for that and basing your life around it, you are showing yourself to have a heart not changed by Jesus. Similarly, when he says not drunkards, we might think of Galatians 5, which tells us the fruit that the Spirit produces in us. Not that we produce, but that the Spirit produces in us. And one of those fruit is self-control. And so a fundamental pattern of self-control or lack of self-control that does not change shows that the Spirit is not producing that fruit in us. And next to last, he says, not verbally abusive people. 
And similar to the, the fruit of the Spirit conversation, we could say, well, if the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness and self-control, if there is constant reviling and anger and abuse coming out of my mouth or my life, I am showing myself to not be a Christian. And he ends his list by saying, not swindlers. And that seems to be the issue of the person that was defrauded in 1 Corinthians 6. He had been swindled. And Paul is including that in a list to show this type of behavior, unrepented of, is damaging eternally and spiritually. And in uh, chapter 5, verse 11, Paul gives a similar list. This is what we read last week. He said, but actually I wrote to you to not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Now, that's basically the same list he just included in chapter 6, except in chapter 6, he adds three patterns of behavior. He says adulterers, males who have sex with males, and thieves. And there's no significance to the differences in these lists. There are many of these kinds of lists in the scriptures. They're all slightly different, but they're all giving us a common picture. And a thief is just a more general term that would include swindling. And adultery and homosexuality, as we already mentioned, would just fall broadly under the, the category of sexual immorality. Because Paul, being a good Jew, has his sexual ethic firmly rooted in the Old Testament, contrary to what some people would like to say. So we should also understand the admonitions Paul gives, the teaching he gives in chapter 5, in light of these additional categories in chapter 6. Don't associate with someone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ and is an adulterer, a practicing homosexual, or a thief. And remember, these, these lists are not comprehensive but I just want to recall ourselves to one thing he says there, who claims to be a brother and sister in Christ. Paul showed us last week, we're not to judge the people in the world. We're not to separate from the people in the world because of their sin, because then we would never be around anyone in the world. Now, why does Paul say this? Why, why can he say that we shouldn't um, be around someone who professes to be a Christian and acts this way? Because Paul has shown us in chapter 6 that such people are not actually Christians. And that takes us to our second point for today. Christians live like Christians. So Christians have a new primary community and allegiance, but Christians will act like Christians. If Paul can say not to associate with certain types of people, and if he can say certain types of people will not inherit the kingdom of God, then it should be straightforward to conclude that Christians will not live like people who are not Christians. And more than that, Christians will not identify themselves with or by their patterns of sin or take pride in them. Based on the list he gives us, no one should think, I'm an angry Christian and that's okay. I'm a greedy Christian. I'm a gay Christian. I'm a drunk Christian. Those should be identities and patterns of life fundamentally incompatible and certainly not something we should desire to identify with as a Christian. But let me give us some things that Paul's not saying here. Paul's not saying that Christians will never sin, just that their lives will not be marked by the pattern and practice of sin. In other words, if your life looks like the life of the people in the world, it's likely you are a person of the world. And this is John's point in 1 John 3, 8 through 9. He says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Everyone who has been fathered by God does not practice sin. There are those two categories again. But John also helps us understand that there's, there's a middle speed here. He says, on the other hand, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So somehow we have to fit together the fact that Christians will not practice sin those in the world practice sin, and yet if we say we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves. There's got to be a middle speed, and that middle speed is simply saying that this side of heaven for the Christian 
we will not attain to sinless perfection, but neither will we live like those who don't know Jesus. But they're also not saying we're saved by our works. That's incredibly important. And verse 11 will show us that, but we are saved by the work of Christ alone. But both Paul and John also recognize that the Holy Spirit is far too powerful to indwell a person, regenerate them. In other words, take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, give them a new nature, a new pattern of desires. He's far too powerful to do that, and then that person keep living the same way. Now, that doesn't mean sinlessness, but it looks like a trajectory towards it. It looks like a fight for righteousness. The life of a Christian is marked by an increasing struggle against sin, not a decreasing struggle. And the Christian who says, I'm not struggling against sin, has already been defeated or is actually not a Christian. God's people like the things of God, and they fight against worldliness in their heart and pray for God to give them strength in that. They don't make a truce with sin. They don't say, okay, I've carved out this little area over here. Just stay there. Don't flare out of it, and we'll be okay. No, they they go on a search-and-destroy mission against sin and in the power of the Spirit. And that fight against sin is evidence of the Spirit's working in their heart. Now, perhaps you're here and you would realize or say that I like my sin. I, I want to keep it. Or perhaps you're one of the people that Paul referenced, the types of people in this passage or in 1 Corinthians 5. Then you need to surrender to Jesus, to turn from your sin, to admit that God's ways are best and that you can't actually live as He intends without Him to turn and trust Him alone, to surrender. You need to realize that, yes, it's an offense against God, and it's also harmful to you. But the truth of the gospel is that everyone who comes to Jesus in repentance and trust will find Him to be a perfect Savior. No one has called on Jesus in repentance and faith and been left alone in their sin. And change is possible. Paul says as much in the very next verse. And some of you used to be like this. Past tense, used to be, in other words, currently are not. Like, I've been there, I've talked with you. Some of you used to have this pattern of life, and you don't now. And why? This is what he says. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that takes us to our third and final point. Christians have been changed by God. So Christians have a new fundamental identity, a new pattern of life, a new primary community, Christians will act like Christians, but here is why. Not because they've changed themselves, but because Christians have been changed by God. Because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of what the Spirit has done in our hearts and lives, Christians are not like we used to be. We're also not like we will be. There's a process and a progression here. But Christians have been washed of their guilt and sin by Christ. They've been sanctified, which means set apart They've been justified. We have been declared righteous and credited with the very righteousness of Jesus even though we are not yet righteous people. And Jesus and the Spirit can change any kind of person, regardless of whether they're sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, verbally abusive, swindlers, or anything else. Jesus has changed me. Jesus has changed many people in this room, and Jesus can change you. Jesus has never met a sinner. He can't turn into a saint. And through the gospel, every repentant sinner finds grace, healing, and restoration. Now you'll notice, verse 11 doesn't speak of anything we do. God is the one acting. So we get to the end of our rope and we fall on His grace and throw ourselves on His mercies. 
and He makes us clean. We even admit that we can't meet our own standards of righteousness, much less His. And He washes us, He sanctifies us, He justifies us, and He makes us not like we used to be. Regardless of who we were, regardless of what we've done, regardless of if we're in that list or out of that list or anything else, And that helps us make sense of how Paul can expect that Christians will live a certain way. He simply expects them to be what they are. You've been washed, so live like you've been washed. You've been set apart, so live set apart. You've been credited with the righteousness and goodness of Jesus Christ, we'll start living that way. But notice he doesn't say, live this way and God will credit you with his righteousness. That is fundamentally against the gospel, but no, since God has changed you and given you a new heart, walk this way. Actions flow from a heart that's been changed. That won't look like sinless perfection, but it does look like a desire and a fight for it. So, because of the work of the Spirit, Christians have a new primary allegiance in a community. We are committed to one another. That should affect how we deal with sin how we look at our finances and giving and bearing when we've been sinned against, it should give us much patience. Think of all the patience God had with us in our lives and sin. And because of the Spirit's work, Christians will act like Christians, not because of our innate goodness, but because of the goodness and work of Jesus Christ as a rule and in general. And all of this is because Christians have been changed by God. He's given us a new nature. He's transformed us and is transforming us into His likeness, and that's our hope. That's our desire, to realize the things we do wrong, the grace we receive, the struggles we have are all working together to make us like Jesus into the image of our Savior. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you have changed us as your people. God, I ask that you would continue to, that you would continue to give us grace as you've promised, that you would work in us to will and fight against sin. God, that you would help us be patient with your people, our fellow brothers and sisters, that we wouldn't evaluate each other according to the flesh, but we would evaluate each other according to your word and who you are and the fact that you've had patience and grace with each of us and call us to have the same. God, especially when that's difficult, help us do that. Help us reflect well on you. Give us hearts that desire to increasingly do that. I ask all this in your son's name. Amen.